This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. So today I'm here with Dr. Erica Herzog. Uh, Dr. Herzog is an associate professor of medicine at the Yale School of Medicine. She's the director of Translational Lung Research Program and the director of the Interstitial Lung Center of Excellence. She's also co-director of the Yale Fibrosis Program and an assistant director of the Medical Student Research Program. Welcome to the podcast today. Thank you for having me. Um, So we are really excited to talk to you today about career development, how to get that first R1, how to get that second R1. You've been a very successful researcher. And so I wanted to know a little bit from you is, how did your early career path go? So everybody's early career path is different. Mine involved believing that I would um, be a clinician educator. So when I decided to do pulmonary critical care medicine, I initially thought I would be a MICU attending, I would be up all night swanning people and innovating, and I was really looking forward to that. But when I got to Yale and I encountered patients with fatal and incurable forms of lung disease, I decided I might be able to make a better contribution to humanity and medicine by understanding these diseases and potentially developing new treatments, because that's the ultimate goal. So at the time, Yale was one of the few places in the country that offered a PhD program uh, that could be performed parallel with, with clinical fellowship. So I enrolled in this PhD program and worked in a, a pretty hardcore basic science laboratory of a non-pulmonologist who's a stem cell biologist. Um, spent four or five years in this lab performing really, really basic science work that really that taught me a lot about how to be a great scientist. Um, but was relatively far removed from clinical medicine, which obviously as a physician scientist was my passion. So at the end of my PhD, I decided that I I wanted to sort of switch gears, get back into a more translational project, and that's when I was hired by the pulmonary section at Yale to start my independent career. So what was that first R01 project uh, that got funded, and, and what was the biggest challenge in getting it funded? Okay, so... There were many challenges in getting my first R01 funded. My first R01 studied the role of neuroimmune molecules in uh, the immunopathogenesis of pulmonary fibrosis. So for anybody who's old enough to remember the late 2000s, uh, they'll remember that nobody believed that the immune system was important in IPF at the time. And so, The fact that I was studying a relatively controversial area as a young scientist made it very, very difficult for the R01, for that initial R01 to get funded. So what made it so hard? First of all, um, my K had been performed with my uh, PhD mentor, and I basically had to switch topics halfway through my K. So none of the work I had done early on in the K was really applicable to my R01. Um, the second issue was that the, t- the, the area that I had taken on to study, the immunopathogenesis of pulmonary fibrosis, as I said, was controversial. And in terms of um, 
local expertise. Yale has a huge expertise in fibrosis, and I was working with my mentors. Am I allowed to mention my mentors? Okay, so I was working with Jack Elias, who um, really wasn't a fibrosis guy, but was an immune guy. And so I applied a lot of immunology work that I was doing with Jack to the study of, of pulmonary fibrosis. Um, and basically had to start a research program from scratch, right? So I had to start an immune, immune program in fibrosis. Because I was interested in doing human samples, I had to start a translational biobank that didn't exist. And all of this takes time and money, which I didn't really have. I mean, personally at the time, I had three kids, uh, was doing 12 weeks in the MICU, and I think 12 or 14 weekends. So there was really a lot going on. So between the end of my K, and the beginning of my R, there was probably about two, three years. And so I, I think a lot of factors combined to make that a very, very challenging time, but ultimately succeeded in the uphill battle. So then how did you go from that first R1 to a second R1? What were, how were the challenges similar and how were the challenges different? The first R01 um, was quite successful in terms of productivity. So when you go for your, for your second R01, you're no longer an early stage investigator. So they, you're now being um, compared to mid-career and senior career investigators. And so while the NIH for an early stage investigator will give you a little leeway in this five point percentile thing where they make it a little easier for you to get it, that second one, you're kind of thrown in the water and you're competing against uh, some really famous people who have made some huge contributions. So in, in order to be competitive for that second R01, you really need to show that you've been able to succeed with your first R01. And uh, fortunately, we had been able to achieve most of the, the goals of the first R01 and we had been pretty successful with some very high impact papers. Uh, we take in the field of fibrosis in some new areas. And um, basically what I did for the second R01 was I transplanted the, the project from the first R01 into a different disease. So my first R01 was about IPF. Uh, studies in the lab were performing parallel investigations in scleroderma related ILD, which is completely different disease from, from IPF. I mean, they're both fibrotic lung disease, but the pathogenesis is very different. And so the second R01 built from the first R01 in many of the techniques and the methods that were used, but because it was a completely different disease, uh, nobody would ever think that those were the two same projects. So besides just writing a great grant, like, are there any specific strategies that you would advise or employ? For example, how ambitious should the first R1 be from the second? How different should they be? And how to distinguish yourself from mentors and previous work? Okay, so the mentor issue, I think, applies to the first R1. And the ambition issue, I think, applies to the first R1. Because the second R1, you need to be really ambitious and you need to be like the rest of the R1s that are going in from you know these people all around the country, like people like Jeff Whitsitt or Jack Elias or um, Vic Vanderkall, these people that really put, have made amazing contributions and put in these wonderful grants. So you need to be just as good as those people for your second R1. For the first R1, I got some really good advice from my program officer. So my first, the first R01 I put in didn't get triaged, but it almost got triaged. So I got the lowest score possible that you can get with 
without being triaged. And of course, you know, you're so connected to your grant and you think it's your baby and you're so in love with the grant. Like now I look back at that grant and I cringe because it was so diffuse. It was so ambitious. I had 25 different pathways. I was going to try to understand like the airway and the alveolus and COPD and I brought in viral infection and I brought in innate immunity and just looking at it now, there's no way anybody could do that grant, let alone little Erica Herzog who didn't have any grant funding because her K had ended in 2007 it's now 2010. So of course though, what I got the, the, the summary back and it basically pointed out all the shortcomings, which I then called the, the program officer who looked over the study, the, the, the summary statement and basically said, look, for somebody like you, you can't be too ambitious. You need one pathway, you need one area that you're focusing on and you need to be, you really need to show feasibility and that you're going to be able to do this because that's really the concern with the first R01 is that if you don't really have a track record of having been able to get a project across the finish line, you need to be proposing that you will, excuse me, strike that. If, if you don't have a track record of being able to get a project across the finish line and manage a big grant like that and to get the publications out, you need to convincingly demonstrate that uh, you can devise a project that's doable in the period of time with the amount of resources that you have and um, isn't going to be overwhelming or not completable. Okay, so the other thing then about is about uh, differentiating yourself from your mentor. And that's challenging. That was also a problem with my first R01, where you, you have to walk this tightrope. Um, on one hand, you need to show that you have sufficient expertise at your institution or at least within the grant to be able to complete what you promised to do. But on the other hand, you don't want to be an extension of what your mentor is doing. So you don't want to just be a satellite R01 uh, that might be feeding back into the mothership of your mentor. And they call it the Erica Herzog grant, but it's just really the Erica Herzog mentor grant that's just happening next door. So in order for that to happen, the project really needs to be distinct from what your mentor is doing and also only for your career. It's not just about getting the R01, it's are you gonna be able to have a career without your mentor thinking that you stole something from them or are you fighting with your mentor for the rest of your career? Um, so I was really fortunate in that respect that I had Jack as my mentor. He was very giving in terms of the project, um, very giving in terms of resources, very giving in terms of his time and very, um, very able to let me carve out my own area. And so he didn't really have a huge interest in macrophage biology as it relates to fibrosis. He had no interest in human samples. So I was fortunate that I got in at the right time where um, still under the auspices of working with Jack, I created an entire research infrastructure that nobody would ever look at and say was anything related to my mentor. Um, now, each case is different though, right? I mean, there are some people that the mentor has everything and that person just is going to stay in the lab of the mentor, or stay at the same institution. That's gonna be challenging for that mentee. And so finding a, a way to strike out on your own 
that will allow you to pick up and move down the hall from your mentor or potentially move to a new institution is going to be really important. Um, what traps do you think early investigators fall into? So in my opinion, both, um, both as somebody who was at one point a, a young investigator and now somebody who reads grants from young investigators, I think that there are two main traps. One trap is being too ambitious. And um, by overambitious, I mean being too diffuse, taking on more than you're able to do. I mean, if you think about starting out with a small lab, you and a technician, if you propose to do studies that are going to be too time intensive, too expensive, not supported by your institution, not supported by any local expertise at your institution, or that uh, your mentor isn't able to really help with, that's, that's going to be a huge challenge. And, in addition to doing the science, you're going to be having to do a lot of startup work, which for a young person can, can be fatal. The other trap that people fall into is a lack of confidence. And that, that might seem ironic if I'm saying on one hand people are overambitious. It's not overambition because of hubris. It's overambition because you don't realize how hard it's going to be. And it's almost ignorance that's leading to the overambition. Um, the lack of confidence comes more when you're sitting on data and you don't realize how good the data is, right? So you've put, you, you've tried to submit your paper, the paper was packaged really badly, and it's getting rejected and rejected and rejected, and you start feeling like you're never going to make it or that the work you're doing isn't important. Meanwhile, somebody else has a less good story and is able to get it into a really good journal. That, that problem comes with not understanding how to frame your data in a way that's interesting, and also comes with the writing. If you think the work you're doing is important, you have to be your biggest champion. No one else is gonna do it for you. So, so how, do you, how do you know if your ideas are good, and, and, and who do you use as a sounding board to talk about things and, and sort of you know, formulate those great ideas of yours? So I know my ideas are good when other people are doing them. So I've been scooped several times. And while it's challenging to get scooped, it also means that you're right. And you're on to something that is uh, potentially going to be really big. So for, for example, when I started doing macrophages, and the immune system and IPF in the late 2000s, there were only a couple of other people that were doing it. And we were all viewed as fringe weirdos that um, didn't, must not understand fibrosis because we're not just studying the fibroblast or the epithelial cell. And I knew that my data were good and I knew what I was seeing. And I would be at meetings and people, fibroblast people would come up to me and say, oh, I think macrophages are BS, or I think, I, I don't know why you're studying that because it's clear that the epithelial cell is the whole story in, in IPF. So, I mean, it's challenging to have people come up to you and say to your face that they don't believe in the work that you're doing. It takes a lot of emotional fortitude, 
But again, when you're doing the work and you're seeing that you're modulating innate immune cells in a fibrotic model or that the IPF5 macrophages are acting totally different from the normal macrophages, that you have to, you have to keep going. And it kind of makes you have to work harder. You have to develop new methods, new modeling systems, and you have to bring in experts. So I, I remember 2010, 2011, I was really having trouble because I had this huge paper that I was trying to submit as a science paper or a JCI paper, it kept getting rejected. And so finally, um, there was a, a, a really great investigator at the NIH who at, at meetings had said, you know, I think your stuff is interesting, blah, 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 had been supportive. So I actually reached out to this person and I said, look, this paper I've been trying to submit for two, two years, I don't understand what's so bad about it. Why does it keep getting rejected? So the person was very nice, read the paper, gave me some very honest feedback, said, look, the ideas are great, but the way you're presenting it is totally weird. And probably what you need to do at this point is just break up the paper into three different papers because you need to get this out because it's all really important ideas. So I followed that advice. And that, that was different than the advice I was getting with my former mentor because by that point now I'm independent, right? I mean, Jack was still here and Jack loves publishing. Jack only publishes in really good journals. I was desperate. I needed to get my, my story out and I didn't want to get scooped. And I, was, I knew that other people were now starting to work on this. Um, so getting that external validation from somebody that wasn't necessarily involved with me personally or didn't have a vested in interest was really helpful. So to answer your specific question, how do you know your ideas are good? A, if other people are studying them and you're getting scooped. B, um, Richard Flavella always says, if you can't publish your work, you know it's really good. So maybe if you're too provocative or you're too new, um, th that could be a marker. And three, go to an external expert and, and see what they think of it. So we, we know that in today's sort of science field, collaboration is really important, but it's also important to focus on the, your projects and your ideas. So how do you find good collaborators and how do you align the goals uh, with the collaborators that, that is mutually beneficial for both of you? So you have to be able to say no. And it wasn't until I had my third kid and I've been married for 16 years that I was able to say no and mean it. Um, early on, we, you, you wanna be helpful you want to you want to be nice. You want to collaborate with everybody who asks you for help. So I guess there's two sides of collaboration, right? There's the giving collaboration and the taking of the collaboration. And the best is when it's there's equipoise between the two of those. Um, at the beginning. Uh, you want to collaborate with everybody who emails you because you're so flattered, people want to work with you, and oh, this is going to be so great. But you find that that starts distracting you from, your, from what your goal is, which, um, you know, when, when Bob Streeter came through Yale in 2007, he was looking at the section chief job. He basically, I had my K at the time, and he was like, what are you doing? Your number one job has to be getting your R01. So your job is to get is to move your own research forward. And I hate sounding opportunistic like that. And I hate saying don't help every single person, but you only have limited time and resources. And right. if you're doing macrophage isolations for everybody in your building, or if you're getting 
blood samples for some collaborator in Texas, but you're not able to get your own work done, your research program is going to fail. So I guess if you get into a collaboration where it seems really one-sided, you need to draw the line. I would recommend being direct because the collaborator probably doesn't have any idea how strapped you are or that they're sucking the life out of you. And I would not recommend just stopping emailing and being, you know, falling off the face of the earth because stuff, that's, that's not who we are as people or investigators. Just say no. People, it's much better to just say no than to fall out of a collaboration halfway through. Now, in terms of collaborations where somebody's helping you, I think um, some of my best collaborators have been both my mentors. So Jack was a great collaborator. Rick Bucala was a great cl collaborator, and they were sort of more mentory. As I created my own research infrastructure, um, I started working with a lot of people in bioengineering, and I wasn't I. I didn't start doing bioengineering because I'm in love with engineering the lung. I did engineering because I'm trying to develop mimetics and uh, of the, the disease lung env environment. And again, I don't, uh, I don't want to parasite off my collaborators. So I, th I think the best collaboration is when you have somebody who has a tool or a talent that they can assist you with and then maybe your own lab can learn from that person so eventually you'll be independent. But of course, like a huge research infrastructure like what I have at this point, there'd be no way I could do this all on my own. So this has been really great advice. Um, just figured I'd ask if there's any other advice you'd give for uh, junior faculty out there uh, listening to the podcast. So the advice that I would give to somebody starting off is that it's really hard. And I know every generation says to the prior generation, it's much harder than it used to be. But right now, I think it's really hard. The funding pay line is low. Um, there's, there's a lot of institutional pressure um, that eats into your time as an investigator. And so what's really going to sustain you through all of this is your passion for science and your passion for medicine. And when you look back on your career, when you get to my age or people who are even older than I am, you look back on your career, if, if you think about it, what was your contribution, so contributions can boil down to what was your scientific contribution and what was your intellectual contribution and what was your contribution to the next generation. All of those things have to be something that really excite you, otherwise, if you're going through the motions and in a, a really difficult job like this, it becomes empty and maybe won't be fulfill, as fulfilling as, as you thought it would be. So I would also say, give it a try. If you think you're going to be interested in it, try it. If you're at an institution that's able to support you, I would say really give it a shot because you can once you get off research, you can never go back. But you can always keep going, and maybe you didn't get your R01 the first two times. If your institution's willing to support you, if you think you have a great idea, just keep trying, because ultimately you will make it. Or you might not, and then you'll go, you'll get a different job, and then that's fine too. So just don't get too upset if it doesn't work out, but at the same time, if you're really passionate, keep trying. Dr. Herzog, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for spending time with us on the podcast. Anytime.